the National Constitution Center inspires active citizenship as the only place in these polarized times where people across America and around the world can come together to learn about, debate, and celebrate the greatest vision of human freedom in history, the U.S. Constitution. Please support us by becoming a member and learn more at constitutioncenter.org. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcast. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this month we're issuing a series of podcasts that are jumping off some great panels that I participated in at the Aspen Ideas Festival this summer. Up next, everything you need to know about the Constitution in two amendments. Welcome to uh, everything you ever needed to know about the Constitution. Seems like a tall order for an hour session, but if anybody can do it, it's this man. It's my pleasure to introduce Jeff Rosen, who is president and CEO of the National Constitution Center and my good friend. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, what a wonderful sight, a group of people who are hungry to learn about the Constitution. This is a beautiful thing. And I have no greater passion than constitutional education. I have the wonderful privilege of leading this institution, the National Constitution Center, this spectacular museum of we the people on Independence Hall in Philadelphia, right across from Independence a hall where the Constitution and Declaration of Independence were dra was drafted. And it also has this beautiful mandate from Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And we are the only place in America that brings together liberals and conservatives and everyone in between to debate and celebrate and educate themselves, not about political questions, but about constitutional questions, so people can make up their own mind. And we're doing that on podcasts and on traveling debates and on videos. And I view this session, which um, just absolutely breaks the record for chutzpah in terms of a title, everything you need to know about the Constitution in an hour, as part of this educational mission. So this is an experiment. We haven't at Ideas tried these uh, deep dives into a topic before. It's hard to imagine a deeper subject to dive into than the Constitution, but I have my NCC Pocket Constitution, with an absolutely thrilling new introduction by yours truly and David Rubenstein about the relation between the Constitution, the Declaration, and the Bill of Rights. And here's what I think I'd like to do. Let's, instead of presuming to master the whole Constitution, let's take two amendments. And I'm going to choose them, because I'm the teacher today. And we might vote at the end about which amendments you want to do next year. But let's take the Fourth Amendment and the First Amendment, which are very important. And let's start with the Fourth Amendment. And I am going to read it. And then I will describe as neutrally and succinctly as I can the paradigm case, the history that animated it when the framers wrote it. And then I will put on the table a contemporary question involving the Fourth Amendment uh, and NSA surveillance. And then we will have a discussion and debate about what you think. And here's the spirit that I want you to enter into this conversation. Don't assume that this is a political discussion. We have very different views about politics in this room. Some of you will like NSA surveillance. Others will dislike it. Some of you will like questions involving the right to be forgotten on the internet, which may be the First Amendment question that we take up. Some of you will not. We're not I'm not interested in your political views. We're not going to convince each other. I want you to transcend your politics and think about your constitutional views and entertain during our time together the possibility that there might be a clash between what you think the Constitution allows or prohibits and what you think is good policy. And maybe you'll even change your mind about the Constitution after we've talked about it. Okay, so here we go. The Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, which I actually, I thank goodness, because I need reading glasses tragically, but I think I can do the first clause of it by heart. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause, particularly describing the place to be searched and the person or thing to be seized. All right, you can check to see how well I did, but that is the Fourth Amendment. When we, that's the text. And we know it's really important to begin with the text. There was just a hugely important debate about the importance of text 
in the Affordable Care Act decision and a riveting division between Chief Justice John Roberts, who said when interpreting statutes, ordinary laws passed by Congress, we should look not only at the text, but also the context and history in which it was passed, and Justice Scalia, who said that we should only look at the text and not look at the broader purposes. By contrast, when it comes to interpreting the Constitution, Justice Scalia says both the text and the original understanding are important. So what was the, under, the original understanding of the Fourth Amendment? Every constitutional provision has a paradigm case, a story that galvanized the framers, that made them convinced that a particular right was important enough to enshrine it in the Constitution, and the Fourth Amendment is no exception. It was fired by the extraordinary story of the general warrants and the writs of assistance and John Wilkes. Who was John Wilkes? He was a British rabble-rouser who wrote a series of anonymous pamphlets criticizing King George III. Some of these pamphlets were very incendiary. There was one called North Britain Number no. 45 that accused the king's mother, the queen, of having an affair with Lord Bute, the foreign secretary. The king was not amused, so he instructed his henchman, Lord Halifax, to go identify the author of this anonymous pamphlet. This is the age before the cloud, so you couldn't just subpoena the records of, uh, from Google Docs or from uh, your iPhone. You had to break into people's houses and rummage through their desk drawer. So Lord Halifax was armed with a general warrant. What is a general warrant? It doesn't particularly specify the place to be searched or the person or things to be seized. The Fourth Amendment requires that particularity, but the general warrant basically says, go find the author of this anonymous pamphlet, and if you're carrying this general warrant, you're immunized against a trespass suit from anyone whose house is broken into. So armed with this general warrant, the king's agents break into lots of people's houses, and they read lots of papers, and they uh, expose a lot of intimate and embarrassing personal information, and finally they get to John Wilkes' house, and they identify him as the author of North Britain 45. The page proofs are in his desk drawer. It says North Britain 45, and they realize he's the author. So they indict him for seditious libel. What is seditious libel? It means criticizing the king. In Britain, seditious libel uh, was actionable even if it was true. In fact, according to the law of the time, the greater the truth, the worse the offense. <laughs> so truth is no defense to uh, seditious libel. And already we're seeing the extraordinarily interesting intersection between the Fourth Amendment and the First Amendment that we're about to talk about, and the framers' central concern in regulating unreasonable searches and seizures with protecting political speech and anonymous dissent. So Wilkes is try, uh, tried for seditious libel, and he uh, objects that the search was illegitimate because the general warrant didn't particularly specify the place to be searched or the things to be seized. And a jury agrees, and he wins an astonishing verdict, a thousand pounds, a kind of McDonald's coffee-like verdict of its day. And Lord Halifax writes a decision which has, was cited by the Supreme Court very recently in the case involving the search of cell phones that holds that general searches of people's intimate effects are presumably contrary to the common law rights of Englishmen. And this decision is so galvanizing to the American framers that they name towns and cities from Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania to John Wilkes Booth in honor of the case, and they have parties uh, where everyone drinks 45 steins of beer in honor of North Britain 45. So this is like a viral video of its day. It's absolutely centrally on the minds of the American framers. So that's the story of John Wilkes, and in a related case, uh, there were a series of writs of assistance issued to identify people who didn't pay the hated taxes, the tea taxes in Boston that were passed without representation. Writs of assistance, like general warrants, authorized their holders to basically assist crown agents in identifying uh, the possessors of contraband without particularly specifying the place to be searched or the person or things to be seized. And James Otis gives a speech denouncing the writs of assistance in 1763 as being contrary to the rights of Englishmen. And John Adams later says of James Otis's speech, at that moment, the child revolution was born. So this is how central these cases are to the American framing. Uh, and there's a clear conception of what the Fourth Amendment is meant to prohibit, and it's meant to prohibit rummaging through people's intimate effects without particularized suspicion because of a concern of protecting anonymity, political dissent, and the privacy of the home. Okay, that's the paradigm case. 
Now we need a little bit of Supreme Court case law because the Constitution is shaped not only by its text and not only by the paradigm cases that inspired the framers, but also by the way the Supreme Court has interpreted it over time. And now you have to be uh, strict with me because remember we've got two amendments to go through. Let me set myself uh, four minutes to try to describe what the Supreme Court has said about the Fourth Amendment uh, over the past uh, 200 years. <laughs> the basic problem is physical trespass, and it's a problem of constitutional translation. The Fourth Amendment was set up to protect people against having their property rummaged through uh, without uh, a warrant uh, and was protected by the law of private property and trespass. But that was challenged once electronic searches began to be possible without physical trespass. So it's 1928, it's the age of the wires, there's a war on booze, and the government is trying to identify a suspected bootlegger called Olmsted. So they eavesdrop on his telephone conversations, and they conclude that he's wildly a bootlegger, and he's made like $3 million importing booze from Seattle, Washington, and they indict him for bootlegging. He objects that the search is unconstitutional because there was no valid warrant. The government says, we don't need a warrant. We didn't trespass on his private office. We just put the taps on the wires that look just like this one that were underneath the sidewalk leading up to his office. So we're able to listen to his telephone conversations without a physical trespass. And a majority of the Supreme Court, led by Chief Justice William Howard Taft, the former US president, who loved being Chief Justice much more than he enjoyed being president, agreed with the government and said, no trespass, no search. It was a very originalist opinion. Taft said the framers were concerned only about searches that involved physical trespass, no physical trespass here, therefore you're out of luck. There was a visionary dissenting opinion by my hero, Justice Louis Brandeis. Ladies and gentlemen, I am inflamed by the wisdom of this man. I'm just finishing up a biography uh, of Brandeis that will come out next June uh, to coincide with the 100th anniversary of his confirmation hearings. I believe he can teach us more about the curse of bigness in government and economics, about privacy and free speech in an age of new technology, and also as it happens about Zionism, because he became, after having had no religious background for his whole life at the age of 50, the leader of the American Zionist movement and single-handedly convinced Woodrow Wilson uh, to recognize the state of Israel. He's, 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 he's uh, I think, a Jeffersonian prophet. He's the most important constitutional philosopher since Jefferson. And for our purposes, he's, rel you know what, I'm so sorry. I'm not going to hit the four-minute mark because I get all excited about this. <laughs> this is really bad. Who's keeping time? Because we have to, okay, can you, 20 minutes left? No. 40, okay. That, at 30, we're going to move to the First Amendment no matter where we are. I want you to raise your hand and go, <clears throat> absolutely, because we have, you know, the First Amendment is really a top amendment as well. <laughs> but we only have a half hour because I promised everything you need to know about the Constitution. So Brandeis basically says it makes no sense to focus on uh, trespass because in the age of John Wilkes, people were concerned about invading the privacy of the mind, freedom of thought, and a wiretap is much more invasive than a general warrant. It shows the privacy of people on both sides of the, of the conversation. And then in this incredible passage, Brandeis anticipates Skype. He, he has a clipping in his <laughs> file about television, and he thinks it's a two-way communication, basically. He gets the technology wrong, but he's prescient, and then looks forward to the age of Skype and cyberspace and says, ways may someday be developed by which it's possible without physically intruding into desk drawers to extract secret papers and introduce them in court. A far smaller invasion was unreasonable at the time of the framing. We have to translate the Constitution so that it protects the freedom of thought that the framers were determined to protect. This is a beautiful example of constitutional translation, taking the value the framers meant to protect, privacy of the mind, anonymity of political speech, uh, intellectual privacy, and protecting it even in an age of new technology. So it took the Supreme Court about 40 years to embrace Brandeis's insight. It did so in a case from the 60s, saying the government couldn't eavesdrop on a gambler's phone conversations without a warrant. But the test the court said is a little unsatisfying. It said the test is, do we have a reasonable expectation of privacy that society is prepared to accept as reasonable? And it's a circular test, because the more the technologies invade our privacy, the more our expectations go down and the less protection we have. Fast forward to the NSA question. And let's, now we can, I think you know, you really know everything you need to know about the Fourth Amendment now. You've, you've heard the major um, 
text, you've heard the original understanding, and you've heard the gist of the Supreme Court case law. Maybe the final bit of doctrine to put on the table is a series of recent cases where the court has struggled with the fact that it had said in the 1970s that if I turn over information to a third party, I abandon all expectation of privacy in it. So if I turn over my bank records to the bank, the bank is allowed to turn it over to the government. In an age of digital cloud computing, that means we have no privacy, as Justice Sotomayor observed in a recent case, because if all of our documents are stored not in our locked desk drawers in the home, but in distributed servers owned by Google and Yahoo in the digital cloud, if I walk down the street, I'm emitting geolocational information and turning it over to whoever my uh, carrier is, and according to the third party doctrine, the government should have unlimited access to my geolocational information because I've voluntarily abandoned all expectations of privacy in it. So the central question the Supreme Court is facing right now in cases involving the search of geolocational data and of phone metadata is whether that third party doctrine applies. And it was a case called Smith versus Maryland from the 1970s that said that this, that set out this third party doctrine or whether we should be like Brandeis and try to translate the values of the framers into this age of new technology, cloud computing, even though there's no physical trespass and even though the data is stored in third-party servers. So here's the question, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the government, until very recently, when uh, the USA Freedom Act passed by a remarkable bipartisan coalition that included Senator Mike Lee and Senator uh, Pat Leahy, ended mass metadata collection before then, the government was, for several years, collecting all of the phone numbers that we called, hundreds of millions of phone calls, and storing them in a database without a warrant. And then it reserved the right to drill down on particular phone conversations if there was some degree of suspicion, but falling short of a warrant. So based on what you know, do you think that this mass data collection, the metadata collection, is like the general warrants, in which case, uh, it might arguably violate the Fourth Amendment, or not, in which case it doesn't. We have 10 minutes to solve this question, and then we're going to do the First Amendment, so there are no wrong, no wrong answers here. Who wants to make the case that the mass data collection is, uh, is like a general warrant, collecting the phone numbers that we do? Great. Oh, you want me to... Having practiced criminal law, I mean, the thought that uh, everything that all of us do is just the government can take it and store it. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't even think it's constitutional for them to take it, much less be able to store it and, and access it without a warrant. I think they need a warrant to even take it in the first place. That's a really important distinction. You think simply seizing the data, even if it wasn't stored in these distributed databases, uh, itself violates the right of the people to be secure in our persons, houses, and digital Absolutely. effects. And therefore, a warrant is presumptively required. Beautifully said and strongly articulated. Yes, ma'am. I'm not willing to answer the question, but I do want to observe that um, <clears throat> we are willing to turn over all sorts of information for commercial convenience, but we don't want to be intruded on and I think that presents a really huge problem. Um, yes. Um, if, if the question is our expectations of privacy, we are voluntarily surrendering this information, no question about it. And yet we want all the benefits of these wonderful internet platforms. Uh, and without answering the question, you're suggesting maybe we have some responsibility. If I'm voluntarily emitting my data in the same way that I put out the trash, according to the Supreme Court case law, I've lost my expectation of privacy in it. And that's a pretty good actual description of the argument on the other side, which is that according to this third party doctrine, if I call someone, I know that those numbers are being recorded. And because the companies have access to it, the government can as well. Look at that. I said everything you need to know about the Constitution. You've now heard the two best arguments for and against <laughs> metadata collection. And we're basically almost ready to go on to the First Amendment. The truth is, ladies and gentlemen, that the constitutional law is for citizens. This is not for lawyers. These are not complicated, jargony arguments. These are things that we have a duty to educate ourselves about. And we have to respect the fact that there are good arguments on both sides. You just heard two really good arguments. And right now, both of those arguments have been accepted by lower courts. The US Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit accepted your 
argument and striking down uh, mass metadata collection. And before that, the, the district court at the Second Circuit reached the opposite conclusion and citing that Smith versus Maryland case said that people voluntarily turn over the data to third parties and they've abandoned expectations of privacy in it. Uh, so that's excellent. We're going to take a vote in a moment, but one last question before we vote and move to the First Amendment. It's an important question. Uh, the doctrine is unsettled. There was a case from the 1970s called the Keith case that said that there might be a national security exception to mass data collection, but uh, it's not been carefully worked out. At the time of the framing, jurors would weigh the intrusiveness of the search against the seriousness of the crime that was being investigated and would have been more willing to accept general searches uh, in cases of murder than in cases of seditious libel. So we might decide that judges or justices or juries should balance the seriousness of the case against the, serious, uh, against the, the intrusiveness of the search against the seriousness of the crime, and it would be a perfectly plausible position to say these should be allowed for national security but not for ordinary crimes. Well, then you'd want, I think, some data about how effective these searches were, perhaps, and that data is hotly contested. Uh, we just had a phenomenal National Constitution Center debate on this very question uh, with Michael Mukasey, the former Attorney General under President uh, George W. Bush, and Deborah Pearlstein from Columbia. Check out these debates online. They're co-sponsored by the Federalist Society, which is a leading conservative group in America, and the American Constitution Society, the leading liberal group. And they're all recorded and online. And uh, basically, Mukasey made the argument that you did and said that these searches are effective and tried to point to particular cases, including one of the New York bombings that was uh, thwarted by surveillance. Pearlstein cited the Inspector General's recent report from the Justice Department that found that the searches were completely ineffective and had not stopped a single terrorist attack. So the data is contested, but that might well be relevant in the constitutional analysis. All right, because we've got an entire other amendment to go through before you know everything you need to know about the Constitution. We need to vote. And this is the question. Again, I'm asking you not a political question, not whether you think NSA surveillance is or was a good idea, but a constitutional question based on your now comprehensive and exhaustive knowledge of the Fourth Amendment. Who believes that the mass collection of metadata violated the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution? And who believes that it does not? And, and who did anyone change his or her mind after hearing the arguments on both sides? What, what persuaded you or what changed your mind? Sir, in the back, you, you, you voted one way and then voted the other? I Understanding the exact verbiage of the amendment changed my mind. Great. Precision, uh, I guess, is, is my answer. Wonderful. Well, being open-minded to the other side and not assuming when you read a Supreme Court opinion or when you enter into a constitutional argument that the answer is obvious is a wonderful spirit of humility to enter into because there really are powerful arguments on both sides. People can disagree in good faith. The Constitution, as Justice Holmes said, was made for people of fundamentally different points of view. And that's the wonderful thing about a constitutional debate, that we can debate civilly without impugning each other's politics. All right, you now know half of everything you need to know about the Constitution. Now let us read the First Amendment. Not all of it. I think we'll let's focus on the free speech clause because we've only got a half hour and see how we can do with that one. See how far away I have to hold it. Uh, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. That's the text. Now, you might say the argument's over right there. Justice Hugo Black, one of my heroes, uh, used to carry a constitution in his pocket and say, no law means no law, and basically no exceptions, except when there were, like uh, pornography or fighting words or libel. So even the greatest First Amendment absolutists generally will recognize some exceptions to its categorical prohibitions. So therefore, let's look at the history. Well, 
one thing to say, first of all, is that the framers believed that the First Amendment was a natural right that came from God and not from government. That is why it's so important to read the Declaration of Independence and that beautiful first paragraph. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The framers thought that there were certain rights that exist in the state of nature before people form governments. And when we move from the state of nature to civil society, we surrender to government uh, the ability to control uh, some of our alienable natural rights in order to protect the security and safety of the rights that we've retained. So I can't surrender to, God, to, to government my right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience because my religious beliefs or lack of beliefs are product of my reason and the external sensations that it absorbs. I'm quoting Locke, who Jefferson read so closely in the Scottish Enlightenment thinkers. And that's why I can't alienate to government the right to control my belief or opinion and thought. That's why intellectual privacy was so important to the framers. Similarly, for freedom of speech and the press, unless I could express myself and criticize government anonymously or under my own name, then I'd be unable to ensure that the government was protecting my natural rights rather than threatening them. And that's why the rest of the Declaration of Independence, which really has the whole theory of the American Constitution in a single paragraph, says that whenever the government becomes subversive of these rights, it's the duty of the people to alter and abolish it. So that right of revolution, when the government is threatening our natural rights, was something that the framers believed was not only a right, but a duty. And that's why they, in Article 5 of the Constitution, set forth procedures for amending it whenever the people believe that government was not protecting their unalienable rights. And that's why Thomas Jefferson believed that uh, a revolution was appropriate every generation or so uh, in order to ensure that the, uh, the people's natural rights were protected. So the right to worship God according to conscience, uh, which is protected by the First Amendment, was a, First Amendment was a natural right as was the right of speech. And it was so important that James Madison actually proposed an amendment to the Constitution that was not ratified, that said that the states, as well as Congress, may not abridge freedom of speech, the press, uh, conscience, or trial by jury. That amendment was not accepted, and it took the Civil War, the bloodiest in American history, and the passage of the 14th Amendment, which turns 150 next year, uh, in 1866, when it was proposed, um, to apply the protections of the Bill of Rights against the states as well as Congress. So nowadays, neither the states nor Congress can abridge the freedom of speech. At the time of the framing, only Congress was so prohibited. So what was the, what's the paradigm case? What's the John Wilkes story that the framers were thinking about in addition to having this devotion to natural rights? Probably the story of uh, John Peter Zenger, who was a printer in New York who published a series of pamphlets this is going to sound familiar already, criticizing the king. And he's indicted for seditious libel as well. In those days, publishers as well as speakers could be held accountable, unlike under current First Amendment law. And he goes before a jury. And once again, the jury engages in jury nullification, even though Zenger is clearly guilty of seditious libel, according to the punitive laws of the time. The jury refuses to convict. It's swayed by a brilliant argument by Andrew Hamilton of Philadelphia, whose argument is so persuasive that he gives rise to the phrase Philadelphia lawyer, someone who's so clever they can get you off even though you're wildly dead to rights, according to the <laughs> laws of the time. And that was the case for John Peter Zenger. So really, Zenger is the case of Wilkes, except the indictment didn't require a physical search since the newspaper could be bought on the horse carts or wherever they sold newspapers in those days. And the, and the First Amendment is centrally about the principle that criticism of public officials may not be constrained and the public debate should be robust and wide open. But that wasn't the end of the story because soon after the First Amendment was passed, the Adams administration passed a series of laws called the Alien and Sedition Acts. And they, like the British sedition laws of the time, forbade criticism of the president. Interestingly, they did not forbid criticism of the vice president, Thomas Jefferson, who was a Republican. So basically, it was a wild attempt by the Federalists to prohibit criticism of them, but not of the opposite party. And people were locked up and indicted under these sedition uh, laws. Uh, and they were denounced in anonymous pamphlets written by none other than 
Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who wrote the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions claiming that the Sedition Act was contrary to natural law and to the First Amendment. And it took the Supreme Court uh, about uh, more than uh, nearly 200 years to recognize that principle. And once again, who was it who gave rise to the new conception of speech that was true to the Jeffersonian Madisonian conception? WWBD, what would Brandeis do? It was the great Louis Brandeis who in his 1927 concurring opinion in the Whitney case, which I want you to read because it's the most beautiful defense of the purpose of free speech ever written in American history. Brandeis talked about how the framers of the Constitution were not cowards. They believed that public discussion was a political duty and that people had a responsibility to develop their faculties. And it was only by having full access to information that they could form the opinions that was necessary for public deliberation. And that's why freedom of thought and belief was central to the First Amendment. And in Brandeis's view, speech could only be prohibited if it was intended to and likely to incite imminent violence or other lawless action. It had to be intended to and likely to produce serious wrongdoing. And you, and you couldn't, according to Brandeis's view, constrain hurtful opinions merely because they were offensive. That was an extraordinary contribution to Supreme Court discourse. It was building on the insights of Brandeis's hero, Jefferson, in the uh, Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. Jefferson, too, so devoted to absolute freedom of thought and opinion and the mind. And then finally, uh, the Supreme Court recognizes this officially in the New York Times and Sullivan case in the 1960s, where there's an ad criticizing um, the Alabama police for having uh, harassed Martin Luther King and the civil rights protesters. The police department sues because there are minor factual inaccuracies. And the Supreme Court, in an inspiring opinion, says that criticism of public officials has to be robust and wide open, and minor factual inaccuracies are not enough to uh, make the speech actionable. So today, under the First Amendment, you can only ban speech that is intended to and likely to uh, produce imminent violence. That has led to a remarkable bipartisan... Uh, there, I mean, of course, there's much more to say about the First Amendment, including the fact that the... Uh, I, I should have mentioned that the Whitney decision, which sparked Brandeis's great uh, insight, um, was the result of a series of path-breaking dissents uh, that Brandeis and Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote after World War I, objecting to sedition prosecutions. It's World War I, there's a Red Scare. Uh, Eugene V. Debs, the socialist candidate for vice president, is literally put in jail because he stands up and makes a mild speech criticizing the draft and calls on people to stand up for their rights. From jail, he gets millions of votes. And the Supreme Court upholds these Espionage Act prosecutions passed under the Espionage Act of 1917, which has been invoked recently in several leak uh, cases. Um, and uh, the Supreme Court upholds almost all of these uh, dissents. Holmes and Brandeis initially go along with their colleagues, but then over the summer of 1919, Holmes and Brandeis change their mind. They read this extraordinarily influential article that uh, a Harvard law professor called Zechariah Chafee writes in the Harvard Law Review invoking the case of Jefferson and talking about the centrality of protecting opinion and belief. Brandeis at this point is disillusioned by the Red Scare. He says, I think I'll be newly sympathetic to Mr. Torquemada, whose you know, vision is, is being laid out uh, daily. And as a result of their reflecting about the history and meaning of the First Amendment, Holmes and Brandeis write these great dissents, including Brandeis' separate opinion in Whitney, that are finally enshrined by the Supreme Court years later. Nowadays, there's an incredible consensus on, uh, among liberals and conservatives about the importance of protecting the speech we hate, as uh, has been so memorably uh, described. And there's been a series of unanimous or eight-to-one decisions protecting really offensive speech, hate speech. So remember the funeral protesters from the uh, Phelps Baptist Church who say really hateful things about soldiers and view the war view their death in Iraq as God's punishment for the U.S.'s tolerance of gays and lesbians. And through really hateful signs, uh, they do these funeral protests. And the families of the, one of the fallen um, soldiers 
uh, Corporal Snyder sue and say, this is incredibly offensive. It should be tortious. It offends our dignity and our uh, privacy, and therefore um, we should be able to suppress it. The Supreme Court, eight to one, rejects the claim, citing the principle that speech can only be banned if it's intended to cause imminent violence. There's a lone dissent by Justice Samuel Alito, who thinks that the privacy and uh, dignity of the family should be protected. There were uh, decisions in, uh, protecting violent video games or horrific crush videos, this fetishistic videos where people kill and torture animals. Those were all protected under the First Amendment. Justice Alito dissented there as well. Uh, but then, of course, there are also cases under the First Amendment that do not involve uh, unanimous uh, consensus, and the Citizens United decision is among the most important of those, where the court five to four held that corporations are persons with the full rights of natural persons, and therefore that restrictions on corporate campaign spending are not permissible. Uh, I think, let's see, why did, what the heck? Let, Let's talk about Citizens United, shall we? Yeah, I think you don't care about the funeral protests. You want to talk about Citizens United. All right. How, many, how much more time do we have? 15 minutes to talk about and educate ourselves about Citizens United or to ask questions because there's probably a little bit more to say about the First Amendment, but we, we, we can talk about that too. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to do this. Set aside your views about whether you think that restrictions on campaign funding are good or bad for democracy. That is a political judgment. It is very important, but that's not what this debate is going to be about. I've told you about the history of the First Amendment. I've told you about the framers' central concern with protecting political dissent, freedom of thought, and opinion. Uh, it, I told you about the Civil War that it took to apply that principle against the states, uh, the long battle to banish from American law any notion of seditious libel, and you know about the story of Wilkes. Um, and let me, let me just try to set the stage fairly by saying we had another great Constitution-centered debate about Citizens United on constitutional grounds. And here were the debaters. In favor of the Citizens United case were Floyd Abrams and Nadine Strossen, two of the greatest civil libertarian lawyers, liberal civil libertarian lawyers of this century. Uh, Nadine Strossen, the former head of the ACLU, and Floyd Abrams, uh, I think, who was involved in the New York Times and Sullivan case. And against them were Bert Newborn from NYU and Zephyr Teachout, who is a great uh, progressive who just, almost, who just challenged Andrew Cuomo for governor in, in New York and uh, didn't do badly. Um, and I won't tell you how that debate came out, but I'm telling you that uh, debaters, just to reassure you that it's okay, you might be a good civil libertarian liberal and still think that the First Amendment does protect corporate speech, or you might be a good conservative um, and think that it does not. So that's the question on the table. Uh, what do you think? Any, anyone? Any, yes? Well, I don't think a corporation ought to be treated as a person. Why not? They're not, they're not a person. Uh, they didn't even exist when the First Amendment was written. And, uh, I don't think they did. Uh, corporations, you say, did not exist when the First Amendment was written. Well, it turns I, I out may be, I may not be right about that. There was a vigorous de <laughs> there was a vigorous debate about precisely that question between Justice Scalia and Justice uh, John Paul Stevens, who wrote a dissent. So, so Stevens basically said the the uh, modern closely held corporation, as we know it, uh, uh, does, did not exist. There were there were family owned businesses, but the corporate form wasn't really up and running until the 1820s. And Stevens also noted there was a strong suspicion of monopolies. There was a very anti-corporate strain in early American history, embodied by none other than Thomas Jefferson, who proposed an anti-monopoly amendment to the Constitution that would have prohibited Congress from setting up uh, any corporation with exclusive privileges of monopoly. That didn't pass, but that populist anti-monopoly impulse, which was further developed during the Jacksonian era, where Jackson was a great enemy of monopolies, and flourished, of course, in the progressive era when none other than the great Louis Brandeis uh, coined the immortal phrase, the curse of bigness, and talked about the dangers of corporations who gamble with other people's money. Read his incredible book 
other people's money, where he talks, invokes this Jeffersonian anti-monopolistic tradition and says that the framers meant to curb corporate power just as they hated bigness in government and wanted to separate power in order to protect liberty. So he said they would have been appalled by the concentration of economic power, which also threatened individual liberty. Now, the case on the other side is this. I'm not, let's not stack the deck here. Justice Scalia said, absolutely, there were primitive forms of corporations at the time of the framing. Corporations are collections of persons. The law recognizes that corporations do have constitutional rights for plenty of purposes, including for purposes of the Fifth Amendment, where if you're subpoenaed in your corporate form, you don't have to testify if the answer might incriminate the corporation. Scalia also cited a precedent from the 1890s, the Santa Clara case, in which the court, in a case involving challenges to a railroad monopoly, held that uh, railroads uh, are uh, persons for purposes of the Constitution and the corporations are persons. So there's some history, there's, there's the text, there's some history, and there's some precedent. And let's, you know, it's not an easy question, but you've started us off nicely, Troy, by saying corporations are not persons. What do you think? Yes. Good question. Chief Justice John Roberts says centrally that uh, people need to express themselves and that a contribution to a candidate is a form of political support for that candidate. That's the way people express their political views is by supporting candidates by donating to them and therefore although it's not, he's not claiming that money is speech in any literal sense but the ability to uh, express your political views uh, by campaign contributions is central to our rights of political expression. And Roberts also cites a famous opinion from the 1970s, Buckley versus Vallejo, saying the idea that we would silence the speech of some in order to enhance the voices of others is anathema to the First Amendment. He doesn't buy the idea that of speech equalization where the rich can be uh, quieted so the poorer people can be heard. For him, speech is speech because speech is an individual right and therefore contributions should count as speech. Yes, sir. Does a, does a, is a movie studio protected under freedom of speech? Great is a movie studio not a corporation? Great question. Movie studios certainly are protected. Their films are centrally protected by the First Amendment, even Pornographic films are uh, protected. Uh, it's the New York Times is also protected. This is a really important question because Justice uh, Scalia said, why uh, are you um, so averse to protecting corporate speech? Don't you want to protect the New York Times? Like a movie studio, it's a corporation. Justice Stevens's response was, there's a difference between the speech clause and the press clause. He was being a good textualist. And he said, the New York Times is protected by the press clause Press corporations have special constitutional status that Exxon don't. Yes, sir. The, uh, I understand the Roberts argument, and I believe uh, Ted Olson was actually here making a similar argument recently that money is a f way to broadcast, that perhaps a billboard is not speech, but you can't have speech without a billboard. A pamphlet is not speech, but you can't. Uh, it seems to me that at some level that's a self-defeating argument simply because if there is a limited amount of bandwidth and there is a limited amount of speech that can be put out there, as there is a limited amount of money that can go out there, at some point a certain amount of that trumps everything else. So if we say that there are only a certain number of billboards in the world and one person buys up all of these billboards, then we uh, have inherently given that right of speech to one class of people as opposed to another. This question of the platforms of speech is central to our analysis, and thank you for calling it to our attention. The framers had a particular kind of speech in mind, the, the anonymous pamphlet. And printing presses were expensive. Not everyone could have access to them, but it was sort of like the blogging of its day, and the assumption was there was pretty broad access to the press. Fast forward to the 19, to 1917, the Espionage Act. The paradigm case is the street corner speaker. William V. Debs literally standing on a soapbox in Central Park. Eugene Bacon, sorry. Thank you very much, sir. Eugene B. Oh, good. <laughs> yes, John is attentive to first names. Very, very good. Eugene V. Debs stands in a park and denounces the war and gets locked up. 
Fast forward to the 1960s, the speech platform is the broadcast networks. And three networks literally control everything that can be said. And the Supreme Court grapples with whether there should be a fairness doctrine ensuring that people have a right of reply to what Walter Cronkite says, because if you're not one of the networks, then you can't speak. Today, our speech platforms are, who has more power than any king or Supreme Court justice or president right now over speech? Google, absolutely. The lawyers at Google and Facebook are the ones who are deciding who can speak and who can be heard. They're literally the deciders. One of the most interesting stories I ever wrote was meeting the woman who at the time at Google was called by her colleagues the decider. Her name was Nicole, is, uh, Nicole Wong. She was deputy general counsel. She is responsible for being woken up in the middle of the night by request to remove uh, videos on YouTube, which Google owns, from Greek football fans saying that Kamal Ataturk, the founder of modern Turkey, is gay, which is illegal in Turkey, but not in Greece. And then the, the king of Thailand is objecting about YouTube videos that show him with his feet on his head, which is illegal in Thailand. And Nicole Long doesn't speak Thai, and it's 3 in the morning. And multiply that by the 142 platforms in which Google does business, and you will understand why she said, I think this job is too much for one person. <laughs> And to make things even worse, well, I just had an incredible panel with her at the National Constitution Center just last week. She's now, she went on to be the White House technology advisor, then was Twitter, and now she's teaching journalism at Berkeley, going back to her roots, which is really great. And she said the real problem was just the bandwidth and the fact that the first line of decisions were made by 22-year-olds in t-shirts and flip-flops, because that's the way YouTube deals with user objections for violations of terms of service. And if a request comes in, first the 22-year-old with a laptop decides whether it violates Google's terms of service. And only if it's really hard, it gets escalated up to her. But she just thought that the scale was too large. Now that I'm going to get this figure wrong, but it's something like 200 minutes of video uploaded, uploaded, uploaded on YouTube a second or something extraordinary like that. So right now, this, your speech question is so, your platform question is so important. On the one hand, the bandwidth is pretty unlimited. Anyone with, with uh, Wi-Fi or a mobile phone can post whatever they like. On the other hand, the ability to get the public's attention is more limited. Do you think the fact that the bandwidth is now much broader than it was at the time of the framing incre increases the argument for protection of corporate speech or not? It's a hard question. Uh, I think uh, if, if we, because the original text that we talked about was freedom of the, the speech or press. Congress shall make, Congress shall Congress make no law. Make. Not Google shall make no law, but Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. That's not a joke, the no Google, because the First Amendment doesn't formally apply to Google at all, but we're trying to figure out whether Google exercising the power of the government, uh, how that ties into the constitutional analysis. The freedom of the press, the freedom of speech or of the press. Uh, I, I'm very quickly getting in over my head to just suggest. We all, we all are. We're just we're making this up on the fly here. This is not brain surgery. This uh, is just to, uh, I mean, to, to, to grapple with this idea of uh, it, we're almost asking uh, if I publish a blog and no one hears it, does it make a noise? Uh, nice. And yes. uh, I and constitutionally, I honestly, I would I would need several beers to figure that out. <laughs> That's always an excellent constitutional move. Chief Justice John Marshall used to convince his colleagues to live together in the same boarding house, and they would drink Madeira, and everyone would get buzzed, and all the cases were unanimous. So that's <laughs> a great way to interpret the Constitution. A few more comments, and then we're going to vote. Yes, yes, sir. I'd, I'd like to know if Citizens United is narrow or broad. And what I mean by that is that uh, money and politics reformers don't believe Citizens United can be overturned. And so they're being very creative about coming up with a lot of ideas to refresh how we finance campaigns, working with the SEC to require corporations to disclose, et cetera. Is Citizens United just dealing with a very narrow band, or is it broad so that the, the experimental efforts of reformers are going to lose in the end? Great question. I can answer it confidently. Citizens United is broad. It could have been narrow. Chief Justice Roberts, we know from reporting uh, after the case, initially wanted to decide the case on narrow grounds. He wanted to say that the uh, anti-Hillary video that was produced by Citizens United, which is a, basically a political organization that receives very little corporate funds, 
wasn't covered by McCain-Feingold, either because McCain-Feingold only covers broadcast, and this was video on demand, or because Citizens United got so few corporate funds that it could be distinguished from Exxon. If that's what the court had held, that would have been narrow, and that would have left lots of room for reformers to pass all sorts of restrictions that didn't cover mostly nonprofit political organizations that don't engage in video on demand. But the reporting suggested Justice Anthony Kennedy wanted a broader opinion. We know from his marriage equality decision last week that many people were inspired by that Justice Kennedy believes in broad sweeping protections of liberty. He's extremely idealistic. He believes that just as the fundamental right to marry has to be extended to all persons regardless of uh, whether they're gay or straight, so the basic right of freedom of speech has to be extended to all speakers whether or not they're people or corporations. So give Justice Kennedy the respect of realizing he believes what he means when he wrote that broad Citizens United decision saying corporations are persons, but once he wrote that decision, Roberts had the option of dissenting or losing his majority. So he had to, the case was held over, he assigned it to Kennedy, and it became very broad. And as a result, when the Montana Supreme Court held, Justice Kennedy, you were wrong to predict there'd be no effect on citizens' confidence in democracy. Here in Montana, it's the opposite. Uh, the court refused to rehear the case because Justice Kennedy is sticking by his guns. So this question is really important. Whether a decision is narrow or broad fundamentally affects how easy it is to have more democratic debate and also the meaning of the First Amendment. I think we have time for one more comment since we already know almost everything we need to know about the Constitution and then we're going to vote. The problem that I have is that uh, you yourself said that corporations are persons, plural. So my concern under those circumstances is whose voice prevails if there's dissent among those persons and is there a requirement for consensus, and how do you how do you test that there was consensus? Because we've all spent a lot of time in a variety of corporations, and we know what usually is the case. That is a crucial question. What about the dissenting shareholders? It was central to the Hobby Lobby decision, which after Citizens United held that religiously motivated corporations can get exemptions from the Affordable Care Act's contraception mandate. And the majority held... Uh, the Hobby Lobby Corporation was family-owned, and therefore, because their owners were religiously motivated, they shouldn't have to offer contraception con coverage. The dissenters said closely-held corporations could include Walmart. Basically, if a single family controls a corporation, it could be among the biggest corporations in America, and therefore, what about all the Walmart shareholders who might not share the religious beliefs of Hobby Lobby? Should, they be, should their speech be compelled? That's a really good objection, and it's being debated right now. Now that, now that you've learned everything you need to know about the Constitution, we're ready to vote uh, in the interest of keeping to time, which is the most important thing in courts and classes. So here is my question. I'll just answer, I'll pose it this way. You, you know, do you believe that Citizens United should be overruled? Vote yes if you think that the First Amendment does not protect the, corp, the, for the rights of corporations in the same way as citizens, and vote no if you think it does. Who believes that Citizens United should be overruled? And who believes that it should not? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, first of all, for an excellent constitutional debate. Wait, before you leave, let me just say this. Let me say this. What we've been engaging in is an exercise in constitutional education. Brandeis thought we have an obligation to educate ourselves. I want you to go to the Supreme Court website. If you haven't done it yet, here's some homework. Read the marriage equality decision. Read the majority opinion and the dissents, and then make up your own mind. Thank you so much. Please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. I know you've been bombarded recently by my reading ads for mattresses and razors. Well, the truth is that despite our mandate from Congress, which you know I love to recite, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely entirely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education. So please consider becoming a member of the National Constitution Center to support nonpartisan debate and education, including this great We the People podcast series. To become a member and learn more about thrilling member benefits, visit constitutioncenter.org membership. That's constitutioncenter.org membership.